Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the Fifth Column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I stayed up all night last night so that I could watch all four hours of the Snyder Cut, which was finally released. Oh, no. The people get what the people want. And I have to tell you, the Ubermensch white man savior, that was a problem for me. Can't accept it. <laughs> That's not true. I, I enjoyed the film. I liked it. Even liked it more than Infinity Wars, which I know is a very, very controversial take person who might disagree with me on that, but who definitely hasn't watched the film because he doesn't have the stamina to stay up for that long. Matt Welch, editor at Large of Reason Magazine. Our comrade, Michael Moynihan, is on the southern border of the United States, personally addressing the border crisis. And since he's saving the day, he cannot join us today. We hope to have him back soon. We suspect he will make it back safely in one piece and that all of the issues down there will be resolved by the time he returns. Yeah, Moynihan just bailed like 10 minutes before we started, so uh, fuck him. <laughs> it's like the old days. It's old Hollywood <laughs> Moynihan. Um, no, he would he would bail like 45 minutes in like, oh, guys, sorry. No, that's true. Uh, that yeah, cocaine wasn't going to eat itself. very real circumstances yeah. where we are like, recording and we're not sure if he'll show up. And sometimes he will explode into the room. That is unlikely to happen this time because he, he really is on the southern border. And he's joined the Minutemen. Yes. And we do have a guest today. Can't say that we're old friends, but we, we know each other. Well, we will be after tonight. And we will be yes. after tonight. This is true. This is going to be an intimate evening with Jeffrey Sachs. Jeffrey is a political lecturer at Acadia University in Canada, but I don't know where in Canada. Nova Scotia. Okay. Yeah. Canada has these things called provinces or like states. Ours is uh, is Nova Scotia. Yeah, it's totally weird. Yeah. You no, know, it's, uh, it's way on the edge of the map there. Should just call them states like everyone else. Yep. No, it's <laughs> happening. The Americanization. Uh, yeah. And uh, this, actually, I, I've never heard this podcast before, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to slowly work my way in and take away Moynihan's place because yep. he sounds like an asshole. He sounds irresponsible is what he sounds like. <laughs> He's the worst. <laughs> He is the absolute worst. And I want to say, America, this is Jeffrey's first time on the internet, which is why he's yep. never heard the best podcast in the universe before. That's right. Well, and we got it up here only about a, a month ago. Exactly. Still on a dial-up connection out there. Yes. Prodigy Canada. Exactly right. <laughs> Are you actually from Acadian stock? I have a little uh, Acadian wing of my family. No, I'm from uh, you know Ukrainian Jewish stock. I'm uh, I'm from your Boston originally. I came up to Canada for grad school and and stuck around because I met a Canadian woman and uh, we're having we have a Canadian baby. Nice. We own a Canadian house and uh, <laughs> at this point I'm just kind of I'm so sunk in I can't even get out. Have you become nice? I mean that's like if you're from you're, if you're a mass hole who goes to Canada that's a lot of tension right? Yeah, I, you know the, I got permanent residency but I'm always on the edge of getting that. That revoked. You've got to really put on a nice face out here. Now, none of that explains the fact that your focus is on Islamic law. I know you as a free speech guy who talks about culture and such. Right. So I think everyone uses social media in whatever way best suits their personal pathology. I like to keep my academic side separate from, from that side. So on social media, I talk about stuff 
<laughs> that I know nothing about, right? right? And yeah. But I say it with total confidence, <laughs> which is why I'm here tonight. But professionally, I focus on legal systems in Sudan and Egypt, and I look at Kind of, to mention the weeds, I talk about basically in authoritarian regimes, the purpose of, of law. What function, if any, do legal systems play in places where there is no democracy? So that's what I look at. I mean, that's got to be fascinating, the kind of tension between you want a law that looks good on paper to outsiders or you want law to be the instrument of the thing that you're doing to people. You know, I, I had lived in uh, Central Europe and all the systems over there, they designed their laws to look really great on paper and the actuality of it was very brutal and the brutal parts were more subtle legally. So that must be just fascinating to watch the interplay of that. Absolutely, yeah. Like there's a, a whole appearance and reality thing where Egypt will have a law that looks great. It looks like it's very, uh, you know, rule of law exists on paper. It rarely exists in reality. But that doesn't mean that, you know, these laws don't actually make a difference. And, you know, one of the things that uh, scholars, I guess, have come to appreciate about these legal systems is even in an authoritarian context, you need to have a functioning judiciary. You need to have rule of law. It's necessary for commerce. It's necessary for uh, bureaucratic efficiency. All these things that even dictators need in order to rule. And then the question becomes, if you establish a rule of law, if you establish a strong judiciary, what's the spillover effect? How does that end up affecting you know, liberalization movements, uh, revolutionary movements? How do activists use those legal systems to achieve goals that the authoritarian, you know, these autocrats would want to oppose? So that's kind of one of the the fascinating things that you see playing out in a place like Sudan. Just to derail everything, because it's it's fascinating <laughs> to me, there is a, a history, I like to date it because of my own parochial interests, to the Charter 77 movement in Czechoslovakia, but that was very influential. The concept of it was, hey, follow your own laws. We're going to take the, the international treaties that you've signed up to and have claimed that you want to follow, and we're going to hold you to it, you dictatorship. And there's something about that that actually has a little bit of resonance with uh, American civil rights movements in like calling back, especially to the Declaration of Independence. It's like live up to your ideals. But this is you know very much like live up to your actual laws. And the people who said that were immediately jailed or, or persecuted. But it also is a blueprint that's been used el uh, elsewhere in China, in Cuba, and a bunch of other places. Has there been a similar kind of we're going to use your laws back at you by dissident movements in the Arab world and Arab Spring? Absolutely. Like every single one of these countries, you saw this in the context of the Arab Spring, but it happens you know, before and after as well. Take like a land tenure case. The dictatorship wants to appropriate a big piece of land to build uh, a new military base or a resort for some you know, rich, connected guy. That violates the law in the books. So the, the people who live in the land, the farmers, will go to the court. They will say, this is what's on the books. This violates uh, you know, the law as it exists. In a, in a world where law doesn't matter, where every court is a kangaroo court, that's the end of the story. It gets kicked out. The story is over. That does happen. But often you see the opposite, where judges know that a law that is obviously not respected is a law that's worthless. So you have to give hmm. courts some independence, some real power. Otherwise, uh, why even bother having a law? So we definitely see uh, the language that looks good on paper actually end up having a real impact, even in a place like Egypt or Sudan. 
But that also sounds like a very difficult needle to thread for the dictator. At some point, if the courts are too independent, you start to try to bring them to heel. And I, I suspect the expectation that you might be brought to heel at some point in the near future can start to have an impact on the kind of rulings that folks um, expect to see, which contributes to an overall chilling effect, which makes it easier to maintain at least some pretense of independence. Yeah, definitely. We saw this in Egypt leading up to the Arab Spring. Being a dictator, it just sucks, right? The thing, the problem with being a dictator is... <laughs> that is a is you, We all know the dictator, it, being a dictator no, is awesome. It's the harems it that, are, that are great. Oh, it's no. Billions of dollars stashed away and the Caymans. Yeah. Come on. But, it, I mean, this is the thing about being a dictator is, is you construct a system where you dominate, but the trade-off is that you know very, very little about the people you're mm -hmm. ruling over, about the structure mm -hmm. of the government. That's, you know, one of the real dilemmas that dictators face. There's no free press. Right. Everybody's mm -hmm. afraid to express their real opinions in public. So how do you know whether a revolution is brewing? Right. Your your generals all say they love you, but they also know that if they don't, they'll get shot. So how loyal are they really? So dictators face this massive information problem. They never know who's really on their side and who isn't. And everybody is terrified all the time and wants the top spot. So you're very vulnerable. Courts are one way of addressing that problem. In an authoritarian regime, you can use a court, you can create a rule of law, you can give the courts some independence, and you can use that as kind of like a vacuum cleaner for figuring out where's the problem, which landlord is abusing his tenants, which um, which uh, police department is 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 abusing its citizens, you know, the people under mm -hmm. in its neighborhood. It's, sure. it's a way of kind of reading the public. We have a, a million ways of solving this problem in democracy. So they're not perfect, but they kind of work. Uh, dictators don't have that. So dictators have an information vacuum that they're often dealing with. And that is why you see catastrophic miscalculations. Uh, oh, what's the harm? I'll, I'll knock down this big wall dividing the city of Berlin. How many people could possibly want to cross over? Well, it turns out a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in Egypt and the year is 2005, okay, why don't we have a multi-party election? This is the decision that President Hosni Mubarak made at the time. And uh, he ended up facing far stronger opposition, and it discredited a lot of his regime uh, because he knew nothing about his own citizenry. So courts and other institutions like them are one of the ways that 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 regimes that want to last try to solve that problem. You've already admitted the heinous crime of not listening to the podcast regularly. So it's possible <laughs> you, you don't know about this book that I've been pushing for months now, but you should definitely read. But I, I know we also have some friends in common. Martin Gurry's book, Revolt of the Public, deals with information and the information tsunami and the instability, which he hypothesizes that has helped to create, not just in the United States, but around the world, you're saying that having a free press is one mechanism by which a dictator or government in general can know what's going on in different places. But it's also a source of things that run counter to the propaganda or the messages or the narratives that you, Mr. Dictator, would like to propagate. Egypt, for example, the Arab Spring is one of the examples that he uses early on, these unauthorized sources being able to propagate messages and as a result, create tumult in the society and ultimately, in this particular case, overturn a government. 
Yeah, I, I mean, there are, these, there are these great micro studies that look at those first crucial days of the uprising in Tahrir Square, which is this big central square in Cairo where the first protests were concentrated in, in 2010, late 2010. And you could actually follow along on Facebook and then also just like text messages on phones, cell phones, mm-hmm. um, like the word kind of spreading. And this was really useful because the police were swarming the square, closing off different entryways and uh, the ability to kind of operate digitally really quickly, uh, spontaneously allowed much larger uh, crowds than normal to coalesce. Normally, the the military was really great at finding out about a protest weeks in advance Mm -hmm. because you had to print flyers and give speeches about it. And then they infiltrate it or they destroy it while it's still in its infancy. But we saw, you know, again and again, the ability of protesters to use these new technologies to, to get those crowds really big, really fast. Yeah, we saw that in Hong Kong as well. Yeah. One thing I would posit just because you put it in a way that I think is pretty nice and it's worth thinking about because we usually in the broader we don't think about it this way. I think dictatorships in general are misread as being stable. You ever see them in a a fiction? They always are so self-assured. They know everything that's happening. They know what's going on. It's my argument that dictatorships are actually inherently unstable. They might not show a lot of, of movement for 40 years at a time or something like that, but then it can vanish in a, a puff of smoke. Like it can go really, really fast. Um, they have that knowledge problem. You're channeling F.A. Hayek, whether consciously or not, but about the, the knowledge problem in no, society. Like yeah. cent- centralizing governments have this problem and it's a recipe for paranoia. Uh, and I think that's interesting to think about because I, I, we all are always searching for heroes and villains in every stupid political skirmish, fucking COVID, everything, <laughs> uh, heroes and villains. And so the the foreign villains who are foreign dictators are like such super evil geniuses who are just calm. They're like Bond villains. They've got an island lair and like a volcano. They're just ready to go. But the reality of their lives isn't that. And I think that's uh, that's interesting and worth worth uh, remembering. I'm going to play to your uh, views here and tell you the, like the libertarian contribution to the literature on authoritarian regimes and how they operate is pretty significant, right? Uh, so this a lot true. of liber- – Yeah, it is true. It is true because <laughs> the information problem is a huge one. The problem of credible commitments is a huge one, right? So if you're a dictator – Okay. If you're a dictator and you have all the guns – you think your problem is solved. You can use mm. that to shoot anybody that disagrees with you. But if you're the dictator and there's no no one above you and you're totally unaccountable, who is going to ever trust you? Right? Who's going to ever take your word? So one problem that rulers face in these regimes is the second in command, the lieutenants. He probably has designs one day on being himself the dictator. If you are the dictator, you're going to give him a promise. You're going to say something like, stick with me, follow my commands, and one day I'll give you my position. Or I'll give you, uh, you know, a beautiful villa on the sea with all the, you know, liquor and, and women that you want. That's <laughs> That kind of promise might mean something if it's written on a piece of paper in America. But hmm. what is the value of a promise in a country where the dictator has all the guns? Right. Who is going to hold him accountable if he breaks his promise? In other words, dictators have a real problem appearing credible when they commit to something. Mm -hmm. This this cripples them with their second in commands. It cripples them when they're trying to lure foreign investors and businesses. Um, 
you so this is a, a recurring problem and dictators might have very good intentions they might intend to keep their promise but who, again who is going to believe them so yeah. this is uh this issue which has been like widely you know discussed in libertarian circles as being key a key solution uh, or a key problem that is solved by things like the rule of law, and Hayek talks about this at length, um, this is an issue that dictators face. Again, courts, I'm, I keep on talking about them because I'm obsessed with them, but they are one of the ways that dictators solve this problem. You create an independent court, you staff it with judges who care about the rule of law, and even though you are in an authoritarian regime, you, the dictator, agree to abide by those rulings. If you can do that, then you might be able to get your second-in-command to trust you, and you might be able to get Google to open an office in your country, and you appear more credible as a result. I I love this unexpected detour. Um, this yeah. is, is not at all what I was thinking we'd spend the first couple of minutes talking about, but I, I think you it's gotta have you back. Yeah, and it also <laughs> puts your your piece that actually inspired my inviting you right now. This piece in Arc Digital from February twenty sixth. The title of which is "Behold, the woke caliphate cometh to America," <laughs> and this is you, Mister Sachs, proclaiming that the entirety of the country is going to be taken over by wokeness. That's my vision. We're, we're helpless to resist this. It's a humble dream. <laughs> that is actually the opposite of what's true. Yeah. I That is, I was trying to do... I presume it's sarcasm. It's really... Yeah, I'm bad at it. I'm sorry. But that's not what it's called. Um, the piece is actually called The New War on Woke. And I think in this particular piece, Jeff, you take a lot of... I'm going to use the phrase that I hate, anti-woke perspectives and personalities to task for rank hypocrisy, for mm. advocating for state and national government prohibitions on critical race theory in various contexts, particularly in educational settings. But I want to talk to you about that piece broadly, because I, I do think you raise some really important points that people who are critical of anti-racism and wokeness, broadly speaking, ought to contend with. But I, I want to start with something that actually happened back in September of 2018, which feels like several lifetimes ago, when I was moderating a debate for a fire and you- Foundation Rights in Education. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know what it is, you're a monster. Go look it up. I mean, seriously. <laughs> um, but it was you, Andrew Sullivan, John Haidt, who hasn't been on the podcast, although Andrew has, and Suzanne Nossel. Suzanne Nossel. Yeah. She was She was your- Co-panelist. At... Yeah. yeah. And the title of this debate is interesting. Is there a free speech crisis on college campuses? Um, and <laughs> it's interesting to talk about that in the spring of 2021, after we've had the summer of- racial reckoning, as some people have, have come to term it. And we've seen, I think, in the years since you and I talked in that context, an intensification of polarization, what many people, including myself, would view as a real cultural shift with respect to norms around speech. And oftentimes, those cultural shifts seem to mirror conflicts that we saw playing out on college campuses. Now, I want to commend to anyone who hasn't heard it the entirety of the program, but I, I wonder if it isn't valuable to to play a couple of minutes of this because it sounds like Jeff, you haven't actually listened to this thing from all of these many years ago. But I thought your opening remarks were really interesting. 
And I wonder how much of it you. I avoid my voice. Applicable. (laughs) If you still hold the position, because I would say that night you were advocating for the perspective that no, there is not a crisis in free speech on college campuses. And for a number of people listening, I'm okay. confident that they would say, God, he was he was obviously wrong about this. So let me let me play a little bit of this so we can listen to it corporately. Let's let's hear it. Before you hit play on this, um, as someone who was in the audience, purely as a spectator at this, really one of the best public debates I have ever witnessed. Uh, everyone was great. Uh, Jeff yes, was great. great. John Hyatt was great. Even Camille was all right. I mean, the moderator uh, was Sully. phenomenal. He, he, Sully he was, really was, he was uh, sick that night. I mean, this is like Jordan S. Yeah, that's right. You were. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, but it was really, really good. And like uh, whatever you think your own beliefs or commitments are on free speech issues, you will be challenged and given a workout and you'll just learn by uh, listening, watching to the whole thing. So please do that. But also now listen to this. Yeah. And, and I will say this before we play it. Jeff, you're a very capable debater. And I thought in this context, you presented the very best case for the perspective that no, there isn't a controversy uh, on college campuses. There is not a crisis and hysteria about these things is probably an issue. I'm very curious to hear where your perspective is now. So let's play this. Uh, Well, thank you all for coming here. Uh, But I have to say, I feel like we've been here before. Every decade or so, we seem to pick a new anxiety that we project onto college students. In the 1980s, they were rebellious, violent, anti-establishment. In the 1990s, they were apathetic slackers with no interest in current events. And in the 2000s, they were starry-eyed idealists, clutching participation trophies, waving them around, and totally, utterly unprepared for reality. Today, we're living in something of an illiberal moment in our national politics, So naturally, and seemingly with no self-reflection, we've shifted gears again. It turns out now that college students aren't rebellious loners. They're coddled and obsessed with playing the victim. They're no longer apathetic slackers. Suddenly, they're dangerous revolutionaries. They're not starry-eyed idealists. It turns out that they're bitter and relentless scolds. Shifts this sudden and sweeping should make us all skeptical. And that's why I think we're all here tonight. We all like to think of ourselves as skeptics, as people who won't get sucked into the groupthink of our friends on social media or the pundits on cable news. But increasingly, that's what the campus free speech crisis has become, a kind of groupthink based on unfocused feelings of alarm and moral outrage. Consider some of the numbers. According to a 2017 Gallup Knight Foundation survey, fully 70% of university and college students support an open and learning, open learning environment where they'll be exposed to offensive speech. They chose this over, quote, a positive one where offensive speech is banned. Now, you might think 70% is still far too low. Well, Gallup posed the same question to all Americans in 2016 and found that students were actually more opposed to banning offensive speech on campus than the general population. 12% more opposed, in fact, which is significant for these kinds of surveys. Now, what I'm saying here is that students overwhelmingly and at a rate higher than the nation as a whole want to be intellectually challenged on campus and are willing to risk feeling offended in order to get it. Faculty overwhelmingly agree. A recent survey from the American Enterprise Institute, no liberal bastion, 
found that 93% of professors, 93, support an open and unfettered speech on campus. 80% believe that they should have total freedom to teach or say whatever they want in the classroom. And 67% of American faculty would support the expulsion or suspension for students who try to no-platform an invited speaker. Now, typically, this is where someone else fires back, and this may happen in a moment, uh, saying something like, oh, sure, well, the vast majority of students are solid on free speech. The majority of faculty are solid on free speech. But there's a radical fringe that's creating a chilling effect on campus. Well, the great thing about this claim is that it's unfalsifiable. A radical fringe, by its nature, is, often, is usually too small to reliably measure. A chilling effect, insofar as it produces an absence, is often impossible to measure. It's still a powerful claim, though. And by the way, Jonathan, that's why I'm so grateful to have you here, because I can call on you to support me in this. In numerous speeches over the last six months, Jonathan has alluded to the fringe, but then declared that it is in decline. During his address to the Manhattan Institute last November, he himself argued that we have turned the corner on the campus free speech crisis, that 2016 and 2017 would be remembered as the low point, and that going forward, we should expect in 2018 and 2019 that this radical fringe would fade away. This was from Jonathan Haidt. And he's right. Stats from FIRE back him up. Campus speech codes are at an all-time low and continue to drop. The, I should say an all-time low for the last decade. The number of disinvitation attempts, which includes episodes of no platforming, peaked in 2016 during the heat of the American presidential election, but has dropped last year and so far has continued to fall in 2018. In fact, according to FIRE's own database, since January 1st, there have been a total of five attempted disinvitations. Five. Now, it's tempting. I know that it's tempting to take a few anecdotes and decontextualize statistics and spin them into a crisis, especially when that crisis flatters our own sense of nostalgia. It feels good, as strained as it sounds, to believe that the current generation of young people lacks our principles and integrity. But as we all know, quite notoriously, facts do not care about our feelings. We live in a country of about 5,300 colleges and universities and over 21 million students. That's roughly the population of Florida. And you will find in Florida all kinds of crazy, obnoxious, and alarming individuals if you're looking for them. And God knows the internet is looking for them because Florida man is notorious. We all know that these individuals don't stand for Florida. They don't threaten Florida. They don't discredit Florida. Now, I'm not asking you to be satisfied with the situation on campus or to pretend that everything is perfect and there are no problems. You shouldn't be, and it's not. What I'm asking is that we all take a deep breath, look at the facts with fresh eyes, and agree there is no campus free speech crisis. Thank Ooh. you. He's good. Sign him up. <laughs> now, I, I wanted to I wanted to play the whole thing for you in this context. I don't know if we'll we'll keep it in there. Uh, it's the first in, time I've heard it. Whole, but it's I mean, one again. I thought it was a really good presentation. Two, the the point that you made with respect to John conceding that he thought that we'd seen the worst of this. That's I mean that's killer. And the mic drop. Here's the it's question: Twenty twenty one, March. Right. Given the right. shit we've seen. 
<laughs> Were you wrong? How did John get then? it so wrong? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where are we? Uh, is it the case that there was a campus free speech crisis and you weren't aware of it? And what is the state of the culture war? And I do want to say this, because this is a point that I raised before, and people won't remember this. You guys were debating this proposition, but you were doing it largely on the basis of the same data sets and acknowledging that there were some limitations about this data. And I thought you made a really compelling case. So please follow up. Give me some sense of, of how you feel about the presentation you made there and, and what you think it means now. Yeah, well, I'll just cut right to the chase. Uh, I, I am more concerned now than I was then. Like, let's get that okay. out of the way. I don't think you know, how anybody could live through the last two years and especially the last, you know, 10 months without walking away more concerned about the conditions uh, on campus and the state of free speech. Uh, and I'll just highlight a couple things. I'm sure your listeners, you know, because they follow this issue, know about it, but I'll just rattle off a couple things. First of all, okay, one thing we can't measure right now is deplatforming attempts because sure. there are no platforms, right? Uh, you know, with, with COVID, it's impossible to measure that. 2018 was a the low point for deplatforming. So it was something like, I think maybe 10 or maybe as many as 18, but that that's really it. Do you mean like disinvitation on college, uh, like a, like a speeches? Is that what you're referring to? Specifically? Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly right. So disinvitation. So fire has this database where they, uh, may, they, they, attempt to record all the attempted and or successful disinvitation attempts. Disinvitation is a bit more of a capacious category uh, than deplatformings, but it's basically anybody who tries to uh, block an invited speaker from speaking on campus. I, I ask because the word deplatforming now, I think, and even within two years, has new meaning and, and new applications largely away from college campuses. That's true. But go on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's very true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the thing we can't measure. It just just to get that out of the way. Uh, I think that the numbers, you know, in 2019 was still very, very low, uh, but it was higher than it was in 2018. I think it was something like 34, 32 cases nationally. Uh, so it, I think the the media did and does a really good job of blowing that out of proportion. But but that that's that's. That's the one you know thing I want to I, I want to mention. I think the the more worrying concern, and here I really want to plant my flag on you know team team anxiety, team concern here, <laughs> is uh, the terminations of professors or targeting faculty. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, there's like a self interest component. I'm up in Canada. I'm fully unionized, so I'm a bit more protected. But regardless, you know, I, I do. I, I think like the, the the plight of academics, especially conservative academics or academics who run afoul of um, the uh, the opinions of some of their students on campus. Like there really is a, a chilling effect, and there really is more concern. I have more concern about them now. Than I did back and then. also just so I think it's gotten worse. Just to interject, also people who are critical of Israel—that's a, a big subcategory on campus too, is it not? It's huge. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so listen. The, the the basic rule of thumb is this: that attempts to censor or silence a professor. When they come from the left, they generally originate on campus. When they come from the right, they're generally off campus. So the, mm -hmm. th this is this is kind of like a, an asymmetry. And it's not to say one side is worse or better than the other. It's just to point out a couple of different salient differences. University campuses in general tend to be more liberal spaces than they are conservative spaces. Uh, and that's just for all kinds of, of reasons we can talk about. It's a generalization, but it's, it's mainly true. And so uh, – 
Israel is one of those interesting cross-cutting issues where you can have uh, – it's one of those issues where – you often have speakers on the left or professors on the left finding themselves running afoul of either a campus orthodoxy or the orthodoxy uh, that exists in, in in broader society about the proper way to describe or discuss uh, uh, Israel. So, yeah, that's one way that we often see that. But that's not the only way. Um, I guess I would also point to uh, we in- increasingly see Attempts by legislators or by um, politicians, activists, people in the media on the right to target professors who engage in speech that's viewed as critical of white people, critical of America, critical of Christianity or U.S. foreign policy or what have you. Um, And that's been an accelerating trend over the last maybe 18 months. We've seen that really take off in a big way. Now, some of what you just raised is the the substance of what you cover in your piece, and I want to come back to that, but I also want to talk about the broader cultural context. I'll take an example from campus and then ask you to fill in some blanks for me. The debate about college campuses, a lot of it depended upon the data, and even today, you've cited the number of deplatformings that we saw before, and of course, now we can't measure it, but even if we could measure it, there's a cultural context in which all of this takes place. And you know better than to even invite certain people at this point. It's disconcerting. And you've already said that you're on team anxiety, but I want to push it further. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm hesitant to sign on to anything without knowing a bit more about the data on who's getting invited, on what kind of views are welcome. And I don't feel like... We fully know one thing. This is why I want to come back to. Oh, well, I'm not trying to distract from your point, but I want to say I, one place, one of the reasons why I am on team anxiety now is because we are seeing that kind of inhospitable climate that you're describing really apparent in the way faculty are being targeted. We are seeing it really clearly on surveys that measure how conservatives feel on campus, where they increasingly are saying that they feel like they have to self-censor to get through the day, mm-hmm. to get a good grade, right? So uh, it's, it's definitely not that I'm trying to like dodge your point. I'm actually going to bite the bullet here. I'm just going to, I want to bring it back to a place where we kind of have something more concrete that we can grab onto in terms of data. And there we really can say we are, I think we are seeing uh, cons- students and especially conservative students voicing greater anxiety, greater insecurity about how welcome they are, how appreciated they are, how respected they are on campus. And I think any educator, anybody who cares about, you know, these people who are at least temporarily put in your charge uh, needs to really care about, needs to worry about. And uh, and and I guess that's that is something that I, I, I would really want to encourage anyone who's like me, who's generally skeptical of sorts of things. I think you do have to kind of own up to that fact that there has been uh, a change in the last, you know, 12 or 18 months that needs to concern you. You uh, referenced in the clip that we played, and you're right to it. It was funny, you know, the sort of this vague sense, this vague anecdotal sense that people have and want to extrapolate uh, perhaps over wildly from that. And everyone's guilty of that in all circumstances, probably, but, you know, certainly in this case. And yet, 
I don't know what the data is on the number of teen Vogue editors who have to like be unhired at age 27 <laughs> because some fucking tweet that they wrote when they were 17 that they right. apologized for in 2019 and clearly she it was resigned, their Matt. She wasn't unhired. She resigned. Yes, they both. <laughs> it was it was clearly a mutual uh, decision. But like yeah. um, like there is probably some raw number of people who have in super short order exited from what we would uh, consider to be liberal institutions. And this is outside of academia uh, for the most part, because academia has tenure. Um, but definitely. In <laughs> well, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> don't. Don't, but some we'll academia we'll has, yeah. has tenure. Right. Uh, um, but no, I mean, but the, there is no such mechanism outside of academia. It's maybe is the way I want to put that. Like, you know, you're, you're a, the curator of a, a museum in San Francisco. You don't have the equivalent of tenure. If you're uh, working at some Manhattan media institution, you certainly don't have anything like tenure. Um, so uh I don't know if there's a raw number associated with that. I don't know if, if like we even need to, because the vague anecdotal feeling that since especially last May, that people are losing their damn fool minds um, doing this sort of outrage archaeology of whatever somebody has said or done 10 years ago when they're teenagers. Sometimes it's very real. Sometimes it's like, oh, wow, that person acted super shitty and he or she's being caught right now. In other cases, it's not at all clear that that's what's happened. Uh, but people uh, are are there's a uh, a lack of grace. There's sort of an, an immediate uh, ejection button that people are hitting right now um, that seems that seems in that anecdotal seeming sense that that uh, you're kind of rightly mocking yet like it's fucking different like there's <laughs> it's not the same as it was in 2018 that thing um the one of the arguments and i was uh i was someone who was on i i would say broadly your side on this not necessarily in 2018 but certainly in 2016 let's say or in the sense of of, of one thing that like, why are we talking so much about college campuses? Like, fuck college campuses. Who really cares? I haven't been on one since 1990. I'm not going back anytime soon. Why does it matter? And the argument on the other side was like, look, those people will graduate and go places and their values will then transmit and we will see it. I was uh, very skeptical of that claim because college students are always college students. Um, and. I have uh, since come off that a little bit because the thesis that that they would graduate and go into places and then act in these kind of ways that I, I, I think uh, we have anecdotally felt has happened in, let's say, the last since 2014, for some reason, it feels like an inflection year um, uh, is now playing out in the media. Um, do you right. share that sense? Do you, am I talking crazy? Am I just victim of my own anecdotes and nostalgia for whatever the hell? Or do you have some is part of your team anxiety part of that as well? Yeah, I mean, well, I'll put it this way. I'll say the thing that that I think I got wrong and the thing that I think might be explaining also what you're feeling now is I really underestimated the cowardice of university administrators, right? The mm. the speed with which they would fold amidst any yeah. kind of pressure, whether that's pressure from the right or the left, from a politician or a legislator or from, you know, 10 students who are upset and raising a, fu a fuss on social media. I think that is 
if I have to think about what the issue is, so look, look, there's two theses here, right? One is that we are witnessing a generational change and that there is a kind of groundswell of uh, illiberalism among young people and that this begins in college campuses and then it percolates outward. That is that. And, and so that's kind of like the that that is the thesis I'm, I'm, I'm still skeptical of because I don't think it's borne out in the data uh, or in the surveys that we have. What I think is it. The other theory, the other thesis is that it is people who are in charge of these institutions who are just somehow functionally incapable of taking the real measure of the outrage, right? They are incapable of appreciating that the people calling for the incoming editor of Teen Vogue to be fired. Like they, they, they don't appreciate how, how maybe perhaps how small or, or minuscule the level of this outrage is. Right. And we see this on campuses as well, where an administrator is taking stock of the outrage on social media about their uh, their professor who says something politically incorrect. And uh, they, they they capitulate so quickly to this outrage mob without realizing this outrage mob is a is a mile wide and inch deep that people will care about it for a week or a couple days and then forget about it. And even to the extent that they care about it, it's a shallow thing that the that people don't really invest any kind of effort into. So I think what I don't know if it's a learning curve here or if it's just an institutional failure, but somehow I feel like what's going on right now is the people in charge of too many institutions are capitulating so quickly and so unreasonably or unnecessarily. And uh, I, I'm not privy to what's going on inside Teen Vogue, but I wonder if maybe something <laughs> similar to that is happening there as well. Yeah, I mean, a lot the, of it seems to be yeah. the terrain that these debates are taking place on as well. And and now I want to pivot into to some of the things that you cover in your piece because I think you you appropriately finger this proclivity that everyone has, I think, to go to extremes to engage in hysteria and hyperbole and to conflate genuine concern about a tangible issue with, oh my God, this is the beginning of the cultural revolution. <laughs> like, this is it. There's no stopping it. And they've, they've captured all the institutions. Now we're all going to die. And we have to do something, anything right now. And I've, I've been, and I don't know that you know this, but I've been raising some concerns about that proclivity for a little while now. I have the same sort of concern. I knew I liked you. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm generally opposed to hysteria. Right. The thing is, you know, your piece, I think, appropriately takes to task people who are concerned about free speech, but at the same time are, in some instances, pursuing laws that want to prevent people from being able to express particular ideas, which I want to talk about that in detail, because I think there might be contexts where it's totally appropriate to try and address the fact that government is, say, mandating that you have to embrace certain ideals or permitting employers to mandate that you em embrace certain ideals, or perhaps even permitting employers to pursue what at the moment is unconstitutional stuff. It's generally prohibited by law, hiring people on the basis of their race explicitly. Like that's, to the extent that's changing, I kind of want some sort of legal action to take place. If there are rules on the book, even even for a crazy anarcho-capitalist nut job like me, who has generally said things like, I'm not someone who thinks that we necessarily want to have a, a civil rights act. Yes, I said it. I also think if we have certain laws on the books, 
Either we need to get rid of them or we enforce them impartially because equal protection under the law. I think it's complicated, but I also think it's interesting. And the challenge that I have for you, if, if I have any sort of meta challenge, is I'm seeing a great deal of extremism on both sides, but I'm particularly concerned about the extremism that I'm seeing on the left in 2021, because when it comes to the sense-making institutions, the culture-shaping institutions, those institutions seem to be captured in precisely the way that you described with respect to universities. And when it comes to political power and the political parties themselves, like the Republican Party is, is in a complete disarray. The Democratic Party may be kind of at odds, but the Democratic Party is largely in line with those sense-making institutions in many respects. And that sort of harmony in the culture, that harmony that is oftentimes punctuated by not unique liberalism, but just the general climate of a liberalism, it makes me, it makes me, even as someone who is worried about over-concern about these issues, it makes me genuinely nervous. And what I've said in certain cases is, I'm concerned about this trend. I don't think you should be hysterical. Also, there is no natural bottom to any of this. When you see like mass hysterias and panics, and when you see deepening political divides and a normalization of political violence, you should be concerned and you should speak up against it and you should advance your values because there's no reason why it necessarily naturally has to stop at a storming of the Capitol in which everyone who dies of you know violent acts on that day is like a Trump supporter. It could get much, much worse. They could burn down the Capitol the next time. So I, I said a lot there, but I suspect you could respond to some of that. But also, I, I'd love for you to maybe tee up your the thinking that went into the piece, and and perhaps you can respond to that broader challenge that I offered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. So I'll I'll describe the, the, these bills being considered first, just so we all have the kind of background. But then we can yeah, kind of use that to talk about great. your issues. Yeah. So okay. So these are um legislative session that began in January, we saw this raft of bills being sponsored, introduced in state houses across the country. Um, and I'm, I'm focusing particularly on, on red states here because that's where we saw these bills. Uh, so yeah, these were bills. Yeah. So th th these were bills that are uh, targeting certain kinds of speech or curricula taking place in public uh, schools K through 12 and universities and colleges. And uh, they take as their target, you know, what we're going to kind of erroneously, but whatever, we'll call woke speech, uh, critical race theory, uh, social justice speech, the whole shebang. And uh, they are, many of them are patterned off of Trump's executive order from last fall, where he banned the use of certain kinds of uh, diversity and equity training in federal agencies and contractors. And mm. what these bills essentially did is they just lifted that portion of, of the ban where it describes what's forbidden and applied it to educational contexts, not to ban diversity and equity training, but to ban the introduction and promotion or endorsement of certain kinds of ideas. So, for instance, in New Hampshire, a bill is being considered right now that would prohibit the endorsement or promotion of certain kinds of, quote, divisive concepts, a divisive concept like 
the state of New Hampshire or the United States is racist or sexist, okay? Or certain races or sexes are inherently superior to others. All right, now you may think that's all above board and fine. Who could possibly object to that? Well, let me say a bit more about these bills. They would also prohibit any kind of endorsement or promotion of, of, of an argument that uh, attributes to a certain race or sex certain attributes, values, traits, characteristics, behaviors. Uh, and that is that language, by the way, is more or less verbatim from the text. That is so vague and so loose that it would encompass a professor, for instance, arguing in favor of affirmative action, which is advocation for uh, race-based affirmative action mm -hmm. would be the advocation for, uh, you know, privileging in certain contexts, one race over another. It would be, right. it, it would ensnare an evolutionary psychologist who believes that women have certain characteristics or traits that men do not, right? What this law would do is it would say, if you, if a professor or, or in some cases, students or student organizations advocate for one of those ideas, then this university or college would be stripped of a certain amount of funding, in some cases like 10%. So like New Hampshire, Oklahoma, West Virginia, they all have these bills being considered right now. Arkansas has its own kind of toxic bill that's very similar, even, even worse in some ways. Uh, Iowa. Uh, a lot of states are introducing this. It's, it's, it's in the works in Missouri as well. So what these bills are really responding to is, uh, I think, this, this concern, you know, justly or unjustly, I'll leave it up to you guys, uh, that universities are pushing this kind of hardline, quote, critical race theory, woke agenda that is teaching that white people are inferior and people of color are superior, that America is racist and sexist, and that it must be overthrown. It's kind of those those ideas that are out there in the ether in some places on, on the left, um, and these bills are trying to prohibit the promotion of those ideas. In that sense, it is a flat-out, unadulterated assault on campus-free speech, Right. There's a conversation we can have about whether or not those kinds of prohibitions should be in place for public education K through 12. But at the university and college level where you're, you're dealing with adults, students who, you know, are old enough to be drafted and, and to fight for their country, uh, it's a different kind of, kind of conversation. And uh, in that sense, these laws, I think, really do merit some kind of pushback and concern, especially from those who have spent the last four or five years waxing romantic about the importance of academic freedom and free speech. It's kind of hysterical to me and ironic that many of those same voices are now turning on a dime and now pushing these bills that would hamstring academic speech. I mean, part of part of uh, the observation that we've had at Reason and and elsewhere is that the culture of free speech, which is a very vague term, but I think nonetheless really important. Um, there are people who disagree that there that such a thing even exists. I, I I'm not one of them, um, but that it is. Uh, uh, it's in a bad place right now on the right and on the left. And we write about this 
uh, a lot and reason. Like there's a raft of bills. The governor of Texas is going to like crack down on on Facebook or I think the governor of right. Florida wants to make sure that you they will punish social media companies if they don't, if they deplatform a politician. Um, the, the, there's just all this nonsense that's bubbling up. And in, in every Josh Hawley, the kind of new conservatism is taking uh, a populist view of the media, which is completely at odds with four decades of conservatism or conservative kind of media approach, which is more about deregulation. It was more about ending the fairness doctrine and a bunch of other things. They've flipped on that. So we're in a kind of, a, I think, a bad bipartisan way right now uh, uh, on all those speech. My question to you uh, is uh, is more about the K through 12 component um, because that's something that I live in with my own kids and I get the emails every day. My 12 year old, granted, we're in Brooklyn, so it's going to be a little bit um, different than in Oklahoma City, perhaps. Um, uh, But uh, for instance, the New York Department of Education had a twenty three million dollar um, uh, implicit bias program um, and the type of thing that those lawmakers who pass these bad bills in red states that you talked about drives them to distraction. And the implicit bias program inevitably includes the slide. And we've seen it in other contexts. I think, um, you know, Coca-Cola had a slide somewhere, um, uh, you know, where like one of the hallmarks of white supremacy is is you know, over fealty to the written word and individuality. It's just like nonsense bubbles up from things like this. Um, but like uh, my question isn't necessarily to assess the value of, of that, but like in the world that we live in right now, in this poll, it's much more polarized. And this is something that you can measure um, in which politics uh, or the performance of politics is actually the performance of culture war so much more than it is the performance of actual policy and and spending and whatever the hell differences. Um, I, I look at this and like, how is this not going to be the next 10 years? It just getting worse of people saying we must have, you know, implicit bias training here or we must not have the 1619 project there. It's going to be like we're not in a place as a country where we can sit around and and have some magisterial uh, depoliticization of the things that we spend all the money at. I, I, I think there's an inevitable conflict right now, and I don't see it like working out well at all. Like we're just not in a place where we can agree to kind of figure out how to do K through 12 without just getting everybody's politics all over it. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, by my, I don't have any, I don't have any grand theories, but like my, my okay-ish theory is that this is in large part a function of both sides feeling paralyzed, right? This sense that the institutions that we rely on to bring about social change that we all care about is, are somehow failing us. And we can't get things done through those uh, those political institutional channels. And so instead, we try to work through cultural institutions. And you're seeing this on both sides, right? I think this is very much kind of a response to that paralysis. You see it among students who believe that, uh, you know, the change that they assumed would come about politically, maybe through the election of a certain politician, uh, is not really yielding the results at the, at the speed or the way that they thought. And so, okay, we'll just leverage our cultural power. 
power. You're seeing the right do something very similar, where they believe that uh, you know what they have is slipping away, that the the hard earned victories or that the the traditions that they that they uh, the America that they knew is being lost day by day, and so uh, they're trying to weep, but but they can't save it politically. So instead, they try to work through cultural mechanisms. I think, in large part, this is this this problem in America, this kind of incredible polarized climate taking uh, happening at a time of phenomenal institutional gridlock, where neither party is able to achieve a durable majority, where neither party, even if it temporarily has a majority, is able to implement its policy vision. And uh, in that kind of environment, what do you do? You work through those rare places where you do have some kind of, of status or power, and that is cultural spaces. Um, so I think, you know, you are implicit bias tests and, and and workshops, I think, are an absurdly unscientific and inefficient way of solving these really significant problems in America. At least I think that are significant problems. Uh, and in a sane world, we would address this at the level of our political institutions. In the absence of, of of that capacity, that capability, we're resorting to you know that that one weird trick, right? Those magic bullets, uh, things like, uh, well, if I just deplatform this one more person, white supremacy in my campus will die. If I just uh, hmm. force my occupational therapist to undergo seventeen hours of mandatory, you know, state required implicit biasy tests, suddenly she <laughs> won't be racist, right? I mean, I think that kind of uh, pie in the eye thinking, or pie in the sky thinking. I don't know what pie in the eye is, but pie in the sky <laughs> in the thinking. Yeah, I'll take uh, it. <laughs> that that's what you get in a country where institutions have so obviously failed. Can I can I ask something just for clarification purposes? You said a moment ago that you think there are these are real problems. What what problems are you referring to there? That there are real well, problems that need to be addressed, and people are trying to do it through like these diversity training programs. Are you talking about the culture that's that's off, or are you talking about some of the underlying concerns that are animating, say, for example, like the the racial reckoning? Uh, the un the underlying concerns. It, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I know, I know. All right. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, like, I I am on the left, and and I I do mm -hmm. believe that some of the the diagnoses of the left are valid. Um. So like, you know, a good example is uh, disparate outcomes that I think are being exposed by COVID. Right when you look at um, the uh, the the disproportionate toll that COVID has taken in terms of everything from business failures to uh, hospitalizations and medical complications to mortality rates, uh, whether that be class based or race based or or regionally based, like I think those are real disparities that uh, the left obviously is it cares deeply about and talks uh, a lot about. And uh, I think yeah. that ostensibly, yeah, okay, fine. We can, we can have an argument about the, 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 the nature of that debate, or we can talk about, you know, criminal justice reform and how the left talks about that. Not always in a very healthy way. I'll certainly grant. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, if, if you could waive, if, if you could solve these problems through institutions, I think that's what a lot of people would prefer to do. But instead what they're doing is, oh, well, just the Mar state of Maryland wants every single Healthcare provider, doctors, nurses, every everybody else, to undergo 
a uh, a diversity like, or mm-hmm. a uh, like uh, racial bias. And there you go. Diversity yeah, training program. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is yeah, like to try to, to try to mitigate expected or observed disparities between racial groups and like healthcare outcomes. And I think in this context, I'll leave that stuff unmolested. I've had plenty of opportunities to pontificate. <laughs> on on all of that and i think it's important that people hear you're letting me off the hook from people who who have those perspectives no i mean it's it's cool we could do that at another time but i wanted to try to stick to some of the things that are happening in schools and specifically because of the legislation that you underscored and i think the question that you ask where are all these people who proclaim themselves to be free speech advocates but who aren't raising issues about these particular things that we're seeing happening, as you indicated, in red states in particular. You know, there's a national trend and then there are the things that are happening at the local level. And then there's the cultural phenomena that we're all observing and the relative disparity in terms of the power dynamic between people who are pursuing an affirmative agenda, I'll say. You're at least articulating a strategy for something. There's something you want to achieve anti-bias training, for example, there are specific goals associated. What exactly are those goals? I think a good illustration of it is something that I saw friend Connor Friedersdorf at The Atlantic post about parents who are Democrats who have concerns about the proliferation of anti-racist ideas on the campuses that their kids are going through. And again, we're talking K through 12 now. One of the notes is I'm a parent in New York City. I have a seven-year-old second grader who in the past year came home talking about skin bleaching after being read (laughs) not quite Snow White in school and who recently described which friends she was referring to by saying, quote, the black-skinned girl when prior to her school's recent fixation, it would have been any other descriptor. She now knows that the vice president is, quote, unquote, diverse, but not what she does. There are a lot of people, Matt and I get notes from them routinely, who are facing similar sorts of circumstances in their offices. And the cancellations that are happening when someone is excommunicated from their newsroom because they have bad ideas, the purges that we're seeing aren't being performed by these right-wingers who are pushing what is really a reactive policy agenda in terms of the sort of speech restrictions that you highlight in your piece, which again, I think it's appropriate to highlight those things because some of those things are obviously objectionable. And we do need to make certain that to the extent we have concerns about things, we're not trying to adjudicate them through the courts and legislature I'd say exclusively most, or even primarily. Most. Like, yeah, so. I'll, I'll take most as well. But my perspective, and I suspect it's yours as well, is that even if you think you know, the culture is in a state of utter disrepair and that there is no support for, you know, free speech broadly. And we just, we have to appeal to the courts here. We have to get rid of section 230. We have to do something. We have to pass some law mandating the free expression has to be sustained by social media companies, for example. Even if you think that that's where you are, the place where that battle has to be fought is in the culture. Because if you lose the culture, as Matt was underscoring a moment ago, like the culture of free speech, ultimately the courts can't really save you. <laughs> like it's only a matter of time before they can't protect you anymore. Um, so yeah. I, I, I'm not sure I even asked the question there. What I'm trying to get at is what do you think is appropriate in response to these concerns? Because I really don't think it's just a matter of both sides are 
the liberal. I do think there is definitely a manifestation on both sides, but the disparate power dynamic is very, very meaningful. Let me and interject a thing to set that up even more, which is that we tend to think nationally about everything and put everything in the White House. The reality and all articles like this, and it's a valuable exercise, remind us that there is a huge governing disparity. Put it this way. There are 30 out of the 50 states in which the governor, the legislature, the 2020 presidential vote, and both senators were all for the same party. Let's say it's 18 to 12 Republican, Democrat. I don't know what it is. Maybe 15, 15. doesn't matter. But 30, three-fifths of the country is our one-party states. Slight exaggeration, but not really. Everyone is focusing on the national cultural question at all times. I'm focusing on the president at all times. So when you see the president or the former president talking all the time about cancel culture, which has now become a thing on the right, you look around and say, well, by God, we run things here. Let's stop the cancel culture using our tools. And if you're uh, on, on the left, you see, by God, we are the ones fighting racists. Let's use our tools. And I think that this causes a perpetual disconnect of of like understanding how power is wielded but like a, just a non-stop sense of conflict so i mean i like, think that that state and local thing is 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 well and good matt but i, I think i'm also asking specifically i'm gonna i'm gonna make this sharper than i mean for it to be good but i think it's useful isn't the left worse <laughs> isn't the left isn't no, but I, I mean, I mean it. I'm, I'm being kind of ridiculous, but I mean it. Like, yeah, isn't okay. the left in this particular context? Isn't what they're selling? If if you want to call it cancel culture, I fucking hate it. But if we if we call it cancel culture, let's just call it wokeness broadly. Isn't that worse? If Ibram Kendi's anti-racist program includes him proposing that what we need in order to eliminate disparities in the country is alterations to the constitution to create an unelected permanent new bureaucracy that will have unilateral authority and an unlimited budget to ensure that the outcomes of laws are deemed not racist. And the standard for not racist is they'll know because they're experts. That is totalitarian in a way that these anti-cancel culture bills and the anti-woke bills those excesses are a problem, but they're not, I'd say, a direct result of the idea that is being propagated by these people. Again, that is sharper than I intend it to be, but it's not worlds removed from what I actually find myself thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, this is why I hate the conversation about which side is worse. It's not because it's like a ploy to, you know, to protect the left because I secretly – no, no. I yeah, don't even know I how to I don't even know how to adjudicate that question and I don't even know how useful it is to puzzle out which side is worse. If we're talking about like illiberal tendencies Well, well it on, matters if you got a if you got a Hitler Stalin situation. That's right. Okay. Gotta, All right, like, fine. You know, <laughs> which which we matters, fucking right? don't. <laughs> which we <laughs> don't. Which we don't. No, I mean like isn't that the terror that's a train that reason stakes out, right? I mean they're they're FDR yeah. with more common sense and they're in the position where uh-huh. I guess right they can they can figure out Okay. So <laughs> to, to, bracketing the World War II metaphor here, I mean, I, I can talk about, you know, my Sudanese friends who couldn't enter the country because they came from a mm-hmm. shithole country, right? Or whatever mm-hmm. it was that Trump called it, right? And that kind of illib- 
Right. Yeah. Shit all country. And that kind of illiberal tendency on the right, the, you know, targeting certain people who from certain countries for really ridiculous reasons, like flat out, like, I don't care what you tell me like that. That was a flat out Muslim ban. And uh, regardless of he, he called it one, yeah. he called it he one. Right. So. I don't <laughs> care how the Supreme Court later retconned that justification. Yeah. I mean, so. Uh, I, that, was, I, that was his intent. That I, was his I, intent. You'll find no dispute about that. He, yeah. He was very clear. Until we can figure this whole damn thing out. <laughs> right. Now, I, I take you as being, you know, you are honing in on this question of cultural power. You're talking about cultural institutions. And then in cultural institutions, which side is objectively worse? All yeah, right. Which, which side has the power? And, and if they have the power and they happen to be worse, this seems like something that we probably have to do something about. So what the hell is to be done? But all right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. layering no, no. all the questions on this. Bring it on. Bring it, larding uh, you up with you really questions. are, and 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 you're I'm like a pinata <laughs> over here. No, so uh, <laughs> uh, it, I think this is the way I'm going to frame it. In a lot of institutions, cultural institutions, that people who are way too much online and follow their Twitter account way too frequently, check it way too frequently, mm-hmm. care about the left is definitely ascendant. Matt, you mentioned what was it, the San Francisco or San Diego Art Museum, uh, or the New York Times, San or Francisco, Teen, yeah, yeah, or Teen Vogue. Uh, you know, those are you know media. Uh, you know, arts and culture, universities, those are spaces where if either side is dominant, it's definitely the left, right? There's no question. And that is that is where left illiberalism is free to run amok in a way that the right is not. Now, I'm happy to rattle off plenty of institutions where I think the right is ascendant and where the right's illiberalism is is free to run amok. I would I would begin absolutely with law enforcement. Okay, I mean hmm. uh, the 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 ability of of a kind of of, of um, certainly this is not an illiberalism that takes the shape of cancel culture, but it does take the shape of I think like uh, rampant valorization of aggression of, of mm-hmm. using uh, you know breaking down a door when a knock will suffice of resorting to tasers when conversation could solve a problem and then just you know we see again and again I mean if you follow the accounts on Twitter that I do and that you know that reason has as amplified. You will find mm-hmm. again and again stories about, uh, you know, right wing authoritarianism in police or in law enforcement in general that uh, I think concerns me a hell of a lot more. Maybe this is my own bias, but it concerns me a hell of a lot more than whatever the hell is happening in arts and culture. Maybe that's you know, arts yeah. letters. So maybe, maybe that's my bias there. So that's just, but, but look, that. That shouldn't distract from the way how much we care about what's going on in universities. This is why I think it's yeah. like it's unproductive to nail this down in terms of which side is really worse. That That's kind of my, my pitch there, at least. I, can I just say I agree with that in spirit? In fact, part of the reason I agree with it is because even the example that you gave with respect to policing, like the appetite for official punishment and even for political violence to be meted out against people who have the wrong ideas, it exists on both sides. I saw a post today about a mentally ill man who apparently assaulted an an Asian American person, and there's like a bloodied picture of him. And prominent person on social media with a blue check is saying, I love to see people with bloody faces. When the Trump administration began, punching Nazis was the thing, and anyone who decried it was part of the problem. And back on January 6th, the date that will forever live in infamy, 
suddenly we were awash in domestic terrorists and we needed some sort of new Patriot Act. And they wanted to see people go to jail. And the question for them was, if these people were black, they'd be dead right now. How could you possibly take, you know, the shooter in Atlanta into custody without putting a knee on his neck until he died? Which I think is very different than having a stiff opposition to abuses of power by actors in the state, which is, you know, the thing that gets me like the most concerned about all of this. It's just the general climate is is potently illiberal and universally so in some respects in ways that make me particularly uneasy. But I please, would, go ahead, uh, Matt, I'm sorry. I would add to that. Um, I agree with Jeffrey that, that there's not a lot of gain to be had in, in trying to like come up with some kind of artificial final score of whether, you know, it's Democrats and the left, you know, they, they're 17 and Republicans on the right, they're like 13 uh, on this. The, you can't measure it and it doesn't get you anywhere closer to understanding things. It's actually a shortcut to try to not understand, to try to, to like to, to score and judge. And we are it, we're living in an illiberal moment, in my uh, judgment. Not everyone agrees. Um, and uh, you're going to see it all around you. Um, and so to. To short circuit that in just like a uh, team membership, it gets you away from understanding, you know, like we haven't talked about this, but like uh, apparently the Bill de Blasio today, uh, you know, at a time when we're like sort of defunding the police or who knows what we're doing in New York uh, anymore in terms of the police um, and and criminal justice reform. It's like, well, if we hear people being super anti-Asian, we're going to send a cop to their door if they're like talking too loud in, in a like a, a right. racist way. It's like like you got to pick a lane here, people. Um, uh, I think it's it's the 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 quickest shortcut to actually figuring out where the problems are is to actually figure out where the problems are and not to kind of prejudge and and uh, entire blocks of people based on loose affinities um, that I think that uh, that also distracts you away from real existing power dynamics that happen, whether it's, you know, um, red states act and govern locally and on a state level in certain ways and blue states and others, which is there's a real difference. And that's a And and those differences are way more meaningful than the differences between Democrats and Republicans in Washington as they're legislating. And we always forget this because we're always focused on Washington and the presidency in particular. Even at Jeff's point, like like the uh, idea of of, uh, you know, uh, people on the left are very concerned about uh, uh equity and disparities in outcomes having to do with COVID, many of those disparities are much worse in democratic polities. Um, and some of that is because democratic polities are going to over index for minority uh, memberships or people who are poor. So like, it's not like a pure cause and effect, um, but also that there are real policy choices and differences that arise there. And I, I think it's important to not just say um, or get to the shortcut of, you know, Democrats are worse because they own the culture. Republicans are worse because they are in, insane people. It's OK that both of those things are true and sort of like drill down into the granularity of each individual thing is the best way for those of us who are always outnumbered in these things to kind of just try to make sense of the world around us. Let me pose this question to you guys then, and you can you can tell me what you think. Yeah. 
I guess this is kind of like the David French question, right? You know, David French <laughs> has he, – he's made the argument, I think it's a really interesting one, that we have this incredible bifurcation going on right now between the liberalism of our culture and the liberalism of our institutions. And I think by that he kind of means that the the law surrounding free speech – has never been better, or at least it hasn't. It's Correct. better in many significant respects, right? The no, uh, not the, enthusiastically, yeah, yeah. The court decisions being passed down about campus free speech. I'm going to caveat that in a second, but the campus free speech, uh, you know, the court decisions are incredibly favorable to an expansive reading of of what students or faculty can say. Uh, the caveat there is the Garcetti decision in 2006. This was the court case that. That in some ways I think was a real blow, uh, you know, f uh, as Fire has explained, a real a real blow to things. But uh, but by and large, I mean, the climate is really really great, and on paper, and in the courts, and in legislators, in legislation, uh, legislatures, the story is a is a positive one. So you know, if we're living this illiberal moment, Matt, as you're saying, I mean, like, how do you how do you make sense of this? I guess I'm playing the role of the podcast host here, but I guess I, I, I want to pose this question to you it's guys. It's a conversation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this, I, th I think this is the, a fun, the fundamental question about free speech in our time is precisely that. I think that the culture has turned against free speech broadly. Um, both parties and, and both uh, sets of hyper-politicized individuals are looking to, in various ways, restrict free speech, put the mm -hmm. clampdowns on companies, different types of clampdowns. Um, uh, uh, now there isn't a, there isn't any reliable kind of block who wants to deregulate government uh, influence on even like media mergers or or mm -hmm. you know the fairness doctrine, all this kind of stuff. That's that's just been junked. That doesn't exist anymore. Um, and yet, yes, we have this paradox where the legal parameters for free speech has never been stronger. Barry Friedman, uh, NYU, I think, prof, um, uh, wrote a, a great book about 10 years ago called The Will of the People. And it's all about like the um, how public opinion uh, in his thesis shapes the Supreme Court more than you would ever imagine, um, uh, more or less that the Supreme Court and and I'm bastardizing this somewhat, but that <laughs> Supreme Court acts as a ratifying body, kind of like catching up to where the public is 10 years later, more or less. Um, and like and, and there's a sense of, of like queasy dislocation among justices or among chief justices, especially when the court gets a little bit too far ahead of where the where public opinion is. Um, and so, I mean, we've seen that in various like a very passionate moments in Supreme Court jurisprudence, including things that a lot of people now treasure, but at the time were very controversial. Um, I think right now we're, we might be at that with speech. Um, the defenses for speech are great. Um, the uh, the cultural expression, the, le the leading edge cultural expression of attitudes about free speech are super not great. We're just like we're in a bad place. Everyone just wants to like kick out more people. Journalism professors are like, why are you even thinking about interviewing a U.S. senator on Meet the Press? What's wrong with you? Like what? Mm -hmm. uh, that's huh? Um, that's like a standard affair right now. But. Um, the, I think there's a third stream. So that's a that's a tension and it can't last. And in the Barry Friedman analysis, like something's got to give. And so probably 
uh, what would give in this case would be the Supreme Court eventually, and that would be a bad thing. But I would say there's a third lane too. Um, that cultural sense of uh, of illiberalism towards free speech. It might be that active vocal minority that everyone's afraid of and is way overrating um, its its uh, sense in the world. Um, uh, shortcut way of, of getting there is that, um, you know, senators, everyone in Capitol hates Amazon, hates Apple, Facebook and Twitter. Um, do people really hate those companies? People certainly don't hate Amazon. They ain't nobody out there hating Amazon except if, the, if like the, the feed's a little bit too slow watching the Snyder Cut tonight. Yeah, okay, they're a little <laughs> bit pissed off about that. The stream's not working. Um, but generally speaking, I don't think that the you just like take a quick core sample of the public. They're all pissed off at Apple right now. They're all pissed off at Google. Really? They use all that stuff, and they kind of appreciate it. And certainly during the pandemic, people appreciated Amazon. So, um, yes, there's this gap, but it's a gap, I think, between the jurisprudence and the political class conversation. But then there's a third kind of gap, and that's where maybe some of the stuff will be determined of what is the actual passive public opinion about this. And I'm not convinced that passive public mm -hmm. opinion is as hostile to free speech as elites are right now. And that's a really weird mindfuck to me is that uh, it's my strong impression that um, journalists right now are on the leading edge of people who are hostile to the culture of free speech. And I just can't wrap mm -hmm. my head around that uh, very much. Yeah. Yeah. ProPublica, like calling for censorship of various kinds, like it's, it makes one nervous. Um, but I, I think you're right, Matt. The, the fact that we do see the woke mandates and the anti-woke prohibitions and the campaigns against political disinformation for everything from voting to public health stuff the specter of extremism, whether it's the expectations about a woke apocalypse or I think rather hysterical overconcern about QAnon or surging white supremacy, all of those things make me nervous because all of those things tend to end with someone saying, we need to prevent people from saying things in various places, or we need to control the various mechanisms that allow people to say things in various places, which amounts to virtually the same thing. I know I said earlier uh, something about the sense-making and the culture-shaping institutions, but it's also the case that the private institutions that are responsible for giving us the infrastructure that gives us access to most of these various technologies, that there are like legitimate concerns there too. More political hearings involving Facebook and Twitter and Google, where they're being you know, castigated for various concerns, real and imagined. And it's very clear amongst some policymakers that they want to browbeat them, even if they don't directly legislate, like force them to make certain kinds of policy decisions. Um, and you even have Facebook self-servingly suggesting you guys should do the regulating. We desperately need more regulation from you. Stuff that ultimately preserves um, presumably whatever gets passed will preserve their market dominance, make it harder for people to compete against them while probably not giving people the kind of protections they actually imagine they're getting or addressing imagined problems. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of real broad, diverse concerns, and there are not many heroes on the political landscape on the left or the right. Absolutely. I mean, this is and this is where I, th I think I want to call out. I think there's factions in the left that are making a massive miscalculation here. Uh, and you're touching on it here. I think that there are those on the left who feel that if 
an act of censorship is carried out by a private company, then, oh, you know what? It's not a big deal. If Facebook wants to censor QAnon, that's their business. If Twitter wants to take down certain accounts, you know, why not? If the state of Dr. Seuss wants to ban certain books or discontinue certain books, then that's their business. I see that argument a lot on the left. And I think it's a, it's a massive miscalculation premised on the idea that tyranny is only a concern if it's public. Private tyrannies are just private choices. And I understand the logic of that. I understand that it, it I understand the kind of, I think, almost libertarian impulse it, it, it flows out of. Um, but I don't think that distinction between private and public ever really works out very well, either conceptually or in practice. And I think in a world where you've got corporations that wield so much power, where the tyranny of a private corporation can be so absolute and so damaging for employees or consumers, uh, the left needs to take private power much more seriously than I feel it sometimes does. It, it's made peace with that power because I think it, it, it thinks it benefits from it in some contexts. But that, I think, is, again, like a massive miscalculation and emerges from a total misreading of the history of private tyranny in, in this country. That's a that's an interesting point. I suspect we could probably have a, an interesting conversation about. So maybe push it a little further. What do you think the left ought to do in that context specifically when it comes to what you what you describe as private tyrannies? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, like Matt, I, I I'm I'm I guess I'm I'm not sure if there's any kind of grand rule I can lay down here. My strong opinion has, is that the kind of protections that academics enjoy in terms of their their speech. That's not. It's not like academics are so fancy and important that they're the only ones that deserve those protections. I think that all employees should be able to say what they want to say in an extramural context to express themselves without any kind of fear of losing their job. In a country like America, where your access to healthcare is often dependent on your ability to have a job, you should not lose your job and your healthcare because you say the wrong thing on Twitter. It's insane to me that anybody on the left would support that kind of worldview and, and, and sanction that kind of what feels to me like a kind of private tyranny. Um, people, any kind of employee faces massive censorship every day between the hours of nine to five on how you dress, on what you say, on how you comport yourself in the office break room. And we, we've largely made our peace with that, right? Uh, you know, we live in a society that tolerates that for all kinds of reasons, fundamental to freedom of association and uh, the public-private distinction that uh, courses through America's legal uh, tradition. Uh, I don't want to litigate that tradition right now on this podcast, but, but I think we are seeing really clearly here the danger of tolerating private tyranny when you live in a world <clears throat> you live in a world where corporations have so much power where things so fundamental to yourself like your access to medicine is dependent on your job and i i i worry deeply about factions on the left and the right making their peace with that hmm. i would yeah, it's uh, interesting when i well just to respond quickly when i when i hear you talk about the private tyrannies i i think first in the context of the information industry mm -hmm. and tel telephony to, to use a, a phrase from my past, um, I think about competition as kind of the only real 
safeguard there. I don't imagine that there's any sort of regulatory or legislative fix, broadly speaking, that empowers some government entity that isn't prone to hijacking by the same sort of cultural forces that we've been talking about here that are a real problem. And I do think that giving people the ability to sort of vote with their wallets unperturbed by by direct influence from policymakers is probably the best safeguard that we have at our disposal. And it's not always an easy one because you can't just press the digitate a new Google, Facebook, Twitter, or even AT&T overnight. But that is actually changing, I think, in some important ways. And the possibility of building that infrastructure is more likely to come. And I, I think largely the same thing is true for most other kinds of concerns associated with like em- employer-related or private tyrannies. Um, the good, good thing about private tyrannies is they, they can't jail you um, <laughs> and they can't murder you. But the government can do both of those things. So there's an important I, distinction. I, well, I would so, I'm, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the, the public-private um, uh, split is worth always keeping in mind to those libertarians who have a very, like, free speech is only First Amendment uh, issues. Therefore, mm-hmm. is the government making a law that affects the freedom of the press or freedom of speech? I think that it's important to work more broadly than that. But I would just sort of like edit slightly uh, Jeff's point about the left making a mistake tolerating private censoriousness. What I observe at this point, granted, it's my own sliver of a bubble, um, is it ain't just tolerating, dude. It is cheering it on. Hey, I think we got some allies over there. Why don't you deplatform that guy? Kick him off Twitter. I think that he violated your mm-hmm. terms of service. Um, yeah. There's a, they're leaning into this and enjoying it. And the right in its reaction, which is terrible. Um, and when Marco Rubio is talking about cancel culture, that's the last time any of us ever needs to use the phrase. Agreed. Um, Agreed. Uh, um, <laughs> Agreed. But, but like, uh, and, of and course, Donald Trump Jr., Yeah. And Donald Trump Jr., of course, it is going to build a backlash when there is the perception that it's not entirely asinine that um, you're going to get more of a hearing uh, uh, from the left to technology companies to make your pleadings for deplatforming or like combating misinformation in air quotes or not in air quotes um, uh, right now. I think that the, the people are um, I even have a little bit of sympathy for the private uh, tyrants in that um, at some point you get so big like these companies get big in part because they're like, screw it. We're open. Everyone can come in. And it becomes a I don't know if it's a tragedy of the commons or it becomes just like, you know, some kind of 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 parable of when you get big enough through that process, then people um, again in the political class and in government are going to treat you like you are a utility, not like you are. You can't they're just going to be badgering you nonstop about what you can't what the terms of service can be, who can have them, who cannot. Um, and at some point, these inherently populist uh, sort of pleasing uh, uh, companies who are like, we're open for business for everybody. We will have two billion customers. Why not find themselves in a position where the, there's just an unbearable amount of pressure for them to act as those censorious 
tyrants. I don't think necessarily that any of those people woke up in the morning ever and thought, you know what, we're going to start limiting the amount of content. We're going to start like making sure that everyone. No, they wanted everyone in. Everyone got in. And after everyone got in, now we go after them and try to police it. It's an untenable thing. Like they those companies in many ways are, you know, it's the it's it's like sympathy for the devil. It's like, after all, it's you and me. They're acting like we are pressuring them to act. And I agree uh, very much that uh, like, like it's super pound foolish for people to get super excited about like, great. We're going to pressure them um, to be censorious. Like, no, just like don't be a censor. It's like (laughs) it's a good cultural value to embrace free speech just for itself. And you can argue with the person that you dislike. And if they're an asshole, you can call them an asshole. That's a good place. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that 99% of the time what – these companies are responding to is is kind of unfocused and incohate and temporary outrage that you can so easily summon up through social media. A lot of it's unfocused and has, I really do think, has very little passion behind it. I guarantee you guys have absolutely been a part of an outrage mob. You just didn't realize it because you were hitting retweet <laughs> on some stupid thing someone said. You were, uh, you know, mentioning you're, you're adding your own little commentary on it, and why not? You know, you're in the privacy of your own room. You're on the toilet with your cell phone out. Of course, you're gonna like, hit retweet when when somebody on your side is is spitting fire at some idiot on the other side. Ninety nine percent of the time, that is really what's happening, and I think it, it speaks to the atomizing, anonymizing. I'm making up words here. Nature of free speech, okay. <laughs> uh, 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 of social media, where we don't realize how we are contributing to these sorts of toxic episodes. Right now, you can look that at, you can look at that as a negative. Right? The, how depressing is it that we could so easily find ourselves enlisted in the latest plot to cancel somebody? But it's also a positive insofar as, you know, peop, a lot of people who are contributing to these things are not actually out to fire somebody. They are just hitting retweet or they're, they're, they're replying in solidarity, and there's as little thought behind it as, as just mashing your finger on a corner of your cell phone screen. I'm not saying that's yeah. everybody. At all, and and, and you know, mm-hmm. people who are listening can't tell, but the way that Camille well, is, you did, you did rocking. say it's us, though. You it's, did us. Say it's us. Well, that's you, be- said, it's, that's, you yeah. said me and Matt have done it. That's what <laughs> you said. Matt, so, I guarantee not you, everybody, have. but you two assholes. I'm, exactly, and now I have <laughs> to follow. Moynihan's worse. Moynihan, yeah. totally worse. Moynihan, Moynihan would. Moynihan, Moynihan is, is a bloodthirsty maniac. We all know that. So, <laughs> so he goes out. He goes out for for vengeance every time. But uh, for those of sure. you who are angels, like like you know, you guys. I don't think that a lot of the time people realize the kind of environment that they're creating. Maybe that's my naivete. I have a sunny disposition, but I, I think that is this, this constant miscalculation that uh, everybody from university administrators to the CEOs of, of Amazon are, are, are laboring under. I, I will say in my defense, um, yeah. it, when you are trying to either inspire a, a wave of concern or trying to inspire a wave of ridicule, whether or not this is a good or bad thing depends on the target. That is my firm belief. My interest is in marshalling mobs (laughs) for the purposes of assailing Slate 
for purging longtime employees for having the audacity to politely disagree on fucking Slack. I want that to be embarrassing and expensive for Slate. I don't want to see Slate go bankrupt as a result of my quote unquote harassment. And, and in many instances, I feel like I can say things that other people can't. I defend Mike Pesca in a circumstance like that, especially if I do it in the context of saying explicitly that America has like a hysterical and dangerous obsession with the word nigger or nigga. Like I can say it openly. And to the extent it matters whether or not you're actually advocating for perspectives in public, to the extent it matters that a lot of Americans feel as though they can't do that anymore, whether or not that's true. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, a lot of New York Times journalists feel as though they can't do that in their own offices, which I mean, it seems important. Um, I do want to turn this back to to some of our points of agreement and some of the places where and, and perhaps why we remain optimistic, which is interesting for people who have <laughs> all expressed a great many concerns, but why we remain optimistic that this isn't the end of days and that we will likely... Um, there are brighter days ahead. Um, at least that's that's a possibility if we're willing to advocate for the right things. But Matt, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add before we we, we pivot there. Just like or or Jeff, I'm I'm getting the vax. Y'all can fuck yourselves. It's gonna be great. <laughs> it's just all licking doorknobs all the way down. <laughs> yeah, I'm up in Nova Scotia. Um, we had zero cases yesterday, so. Uh... <laughs> I'm feeling pretty optimistic. That's great. That's That's so great. You did say it was just like the flu. That's right. You did say that. (laughs) Just like the flu. And you can cure it with that stuff that you put in the fish tank. Exactly. That and the crystals. In your lungs. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. I mean, maybe we can talk about like the case case for optimism here. And also, we've been wrong before, (laughs) right? Like I, I should have been more concerned about COVID before it smacked us all in the face. But I think I was appropriately and remain appropriately concerned about some of the overreaction to COVID and the excessive mandates. But this is another issue that we're spinning up. I only use that to illustrate it is possible, even in my efforts to not be hysterical, to be a little too calm. And you tell me, I suppose the question I asked in the context of that debate we had is, how do you know? When you actually do have a crisis on campus, and maybe the question here is, how do you know when the culture is, in fact, too far gone and people really do need to be deeply concerned about, you know, a a genuine, like, cultural threat, a potential sea change in our polity that is likely to be dangerous in a material way and that warrants the kind of deep, grave concern that you're seeing manifest itself um, amongst, and I say, I suppose in this case, I'll say amongst the, the people who are concerned about the culture and who are concerned about anti-racism and wokeness. And maybe if you want to, you can tell me why you would, when you would know that, you know, white supremacy really is, you know, sweeping the country, taking over America and, and, um, New York times journalists are being put in danger because uh, a sitting Senator like has something to say about federal troops being used in some context. Yeah, I mean, again, this is 
earlier, uh, Camille, you and I were texting, and you said this is you and this is a podcast that embraces the phrase "I don't know." So this is where I'm going to play yeah. that card. Like I don't really know. Good. I don't know. I don't know what because I don't. I don't either. Yeah, so that's fair. Yeah, I don't know what a crisis or a cultural crisis looks like. I think America has a lot of different cultures, and um, yeah. I'm not sure. Like what we're talking about here. Let's be perfectly frank. In this podcast, we are talking about uh, elite media. We are talking about elite education. We're talking about mm-hmm. um, you know elite arts and letters, and and that's fine. That's totally important. Obviously, we're not, we are not talking about um, other cultures, other kinds of experiences they might be have with illiberalism. Um, we're not talking mm-hmm. about Beth Moore leaving the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, which is I think like this massive story that. Totally belongs in the I conversation. I don't know about this story. What is what is okay. that? Okay, <laughs> that's that's that that illustrates my point beautifully. Um, I mean, I don't want to go off on this, this random tangent because I feel like we're we're kind of naturally wrapping things up. Beth Moore, though, uh, Beth Moore uh, is a a major major figure. I can't emphasize enough how huge she is in uh, in uh, evangelical communities and especially among Southern Baptists. Just an, an enormously hmm. important figure for the last. 15 or 20 years of um, of, of uh, development of evangelical history, kind of the uh, in media, in movies, in, in radio, in books. She's been really important. Anyway, she walked away. She broke formally with the Southern Baptist Convention about two weeks ago. Uh, I guess you wouldn't really know about it unless you, you know, obsessively follow, as I do, David French, because I think he's this really fascinating <laughs> figure and, and talks about things that we often ignore. But she totally pulled a Barry Weiss. Okay, think about it in that sense. She she did to the SBC what Barry Weiss did the NYT. She walked away because <laughs> of lied, the, yeah. monstrous, lie yeah, right, and <laughs> slagged. What was it? The little axe emojis or something person. like that. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So she she uh, she walked away from the SBC because of the Trumpian illiberal direction she believed the SBC was was marching in, and uh, hmm. you know, rightly or wrong. You guys think about that. It is a very neat, you know, counterpart to what's going on with, you know, what Barry Weiss did. Only I would say almost in terms of just like sheer influence on the way Americans live their lives and think about the world. More has a bigger impact. It's okay? got to be bigger. It's got to be bigger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. I mean, like you pull a thousand people, you know, you're lucky if one of them has heard of Barry Weiss. Let's be honest. I I, I care deeply about that episode because <laughs> I think it is important. I think Weiss is an interesting person. But let's be realistic here. Beth Moore is, is massive. And I and and this is where this is why I, I really object to identifying who's better or who's worse on the what side is better or worse. I think that there really is a kind of very interesting way that liberal media bias works in the right's favor. And that is that hmm. our hmm. media pays excessive attention, justly or unjustly, but like disproportionate attention to spaces where liberals are dominant. Hollywood, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, uh, 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 arts and letters, elite media institutions, elite Ivy League colleges, right? Nobody seems to get very worked up about the fact that Collin College, a community college in Texas, just fired in the last month or so three different professors um, for their extramural speech because and at the behest of their conservative state politicians. Right. 
And I understand why, because it's a community college. It has only, you know, 4,600 students. It is in Texas and not in D.C. I understand why people pay more attention to elite institutions uh, that are dominated by liberals. But you have to put yourself in, in the shoes of the students of Collin College. They are mm-hmm. not getting – their plight is not getting much oxygen. It's not getting the same attention that what happens at Columbia or Yale or Oberlin does, even though Oberlin has sure. half the student body that Collin College does. Now, we can definitely spin out very reasonable arguments for why we should care more about what happens in these elite liberal-dominated institutions. But one of the weird ways mm-hmm. that liberal bias functions, in, in, I think, in the media is that even those of you who are not liberal – because you work and swim and often live in those environments, you care more about what happens. You think more about sure. what happens than you do what happens to the Southern Baptist Convention. Even though Very I think that, so. It, yeah. So I think this is one way that if I were, if we had the time, I would mount my case that the right is is doing things that are running under the radar. 99% of the time, and even though they are perfect illustrations of cancel culture and and illiberalism and, and, and censorship, we don't describe them in those terms because uh, the people who run these debates, uh, they don't they don't live in 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 North Texas and they don't live in Oklahoma. They live in D.C. They live in California. They live in New York. And I think uh, underscoring a lot of media conversation um over the last 10 years especially, is how much, um, even in the age that you would think that there'd be a whole bunch of geographical dispersion of media, hasn't worked that way. It's all like emptied into New York. It really has. Um, Huge studies about this, like, you know, roughly, you know, instead of 30% of of working paid journalists being in the New York metro area, it's now 50%. Those numbers are made up, but they're not that far from from the study that came out a, a couple of years ago. No, it's like it's a huge shift in a short time, uh, which is a result of a lot of local news failing and everyone's sort of like ending up trying to work for BuzzFeed or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think that that sense of myopia and, and there's also social media, just as a media consumer, not even as a practitioner, um, weirdly makes you makes one dumber unless you really work hard at editing your streams about what the hell is going on in the world like you just you have a shallower take on things uh then i i feel like then one did 10 or 15 years ago less idea about what's happening in egypt now than i did in 2005 and uh and it's not just me i think a lot of people have this sort of uh, this sense of dislocation where they haven't really caught up and figured out how to use the new tools. Um, And so these media bubbles are pernicious and we are totally guilty of it on this podcast. Try to burst them as we go. But like we're part of the problem, too. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, you know, what's oh, go go ahead. I mean, I was just going to throw more examples at you. I mean, I I feel like if 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 New York state were to pass a law or, inter- or if, if, if New York's state house were to pass a law tomorrow saying that all cell phones and tablets in the state of New York are going <laughs> to censor out anti-trans speech, you know, that would be topic number one on Twitter and probably, I don't know, maybe topic number one in this podcast. Well, the state of Utah, mm-hmm. right there, state legislature just, I don't think the governor signed it yet and he may not, but, uh, or I'm assuming it's a he, I don't know, but I, the 
the state, the, the, the state, the legislature just passed a bill that would require all tablets and cell phones in the state to, when they become active, to automatically filter out porn. Right. And you have to opt into a free and open Internet where porn mm-hmm. is accessible as opposed to opt out. Right. So I feel like that is a I don't know what the how to describe the bias that I feel would focus on the New York story. But but obviously, I think I think has missed largely the Utah story. I think mainly largely it's not hypocrisy. I think largely it's just like the like Matt says, the decay of of uh, local news and of immediate infrastructure that can take something that happens in Poughkeepsie and elevate it to a national story. Uh, so yeah. somehow what happens in Utah now falls through the cracks. I think, by the way, this is also what happened with these bills I point to in that piece uh, that kind of teed this all off about these anti-woke prohibitions. Because if, again, if New York or California were to be debating a bill that would prohibit anti-trans speech by professors, that would be a massive story. And it, and it wouldn't have taken my stupid piece in arc to, you know, weeks later after these bills were introduced to bring those all together. Um, I think that speaks to, again, this weird way that liberal media bias functions in this country. Uh, I guess here I'm talking about your mm-hmm. country in America, where it, it distorts the Thank image. You. Yeah, your country. You know. <laughs> so there you go. That's that's my grand theory. There. Yeah. As you mentioned that, I'm I'm just Googling and, you know, the, the Associated Press did cover this um, and various other publications have covered this. Uh, you're right that the Times and the Wall Street Journal may have picked it up, but I, I it certainly wasn't something that made it onto my own radar. But that also is an indication of what people are actively thinking about. And most people nationally don't apparently care what's happening in Utah. Uh, and I, I think that's an issue. Um, I also wonder, though. I think that's an interesting point and almost certainly right that the attention being in a particular direction probably benefits the right in some specific senses. But I also think that a lot of the excesses that we've seen in the media establishment in terms of where it does pay its attention and the quality, or I should say degradation of quality of the reporting that we've seen going on both with respect to a pattern of errors that are systematically aimed in one direction. Usually with the prior occupant of the White House, it was, you know, overstatement of how miserable he was. There was that recent retraction um, in the on the part of the Washington Post um, about the transcription of that Georgia phone call, which had everyone very animated at the time and perhaps seems a little less offensive to some people. I don't I don't know that it makes a huge difference, but at a minimum it it does I think illustrate just the direction of the errors. It's very difficult for anyone to believe, like anyone who's paying attention that the New York Times would kind of um generally and consistently like make errors that favored and benefited Donald Trump in terms of their coverage and at a time when, you know, the the proclivity of a lot of these institutions is to opine explicitly about specific issues and to push their agenda when doing what would have previously been regarded as straight news reporting when, you know, despite mounting evidence that the shooting that took place in Atlanta, this horrific, horrific, tragic shooting was probably not explicitly motivated by race, prevailing narratives about this, like continue to insinuate things to the contrary. 
and continue to advance narratives about particular concerns about racially motivated violence and statements about definite trends in racially motivated violence that are actually a lot less obvious than is generally acknowledged in these publications. And when I see NBC, for example, reporting that the police officer who gave the press conference had posted something on Facebook that was anti-Asian, and what he posted was something that is just like factually accurate, that COVID originated in China. Like when something that might be a bit uncouth, but is in a real sense innocuous and just generally accurate, when that becomes the way that things are reported in a systematic fashion, that matters. And, and I do think in large part, like Joe Biden has benefited from the fact that there is kind of a kind of home, a, a, a very, a much more pronounced like home field advantage. And I think all of that combined with the fact that, you know, you really do have kind of one party rule nationally <laughs> and uh, a bit of like uniformity of purpose on particular issues. I think it's definitely reason to be concerned about the things that you're seeing on the left, at least as much as you're concerned about the right. Um, and at least when a party's in power, we probably ought to scrutinize them a little bit more. So maybe I'll, I'll leave it there, give you the last word, um, <laughs> and we can punch out because you've you've been very generous with your time. And I've enjoyed Super. the, the diversity uh, of topics that we've been able to cover in this conversation. Also, the fact that we haven't been hostages to the news cycle, because I am a little bit tuckered out by... I'm Some of the really emotional it. language stuff that's being covered. So, what, what did I say? Tucker. Did, did I say tuckered? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. God, that is offensive. Yeah. That is offensive. Yeah. I'm so sorry, America. I canceled myself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, boy, what to say? I mean, yeah. I, I. This has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking with you guys, and and I agree. Like, I I am so incredibly debilitated by just the exhaustion i didn't even i don't think i realized how exhausted i was mm -hmm. by onlineness of the trump years and yeah. it, it took that yeah. that presidency to end i don't know if it was cuz he got kicked off twitter or and facebook or whatever but somehow like I, now i can appreciate looking back in retrospect how i think i personally was entering the realm of insanity just over the course <laughs> of the last 4 years um, I mean, to tie this back to your question before, my optimistic take is that a lot of what we saw will be regarded in retrospect as a Trump era pathology, that with hmm. with him gone, we will start to see a turning down of all kinds of culture war, you know, temperatures. Um, that may be mm -hmm. the reason why we saw the first kind of spurt of uh, this academic uh, uh, free speech uh, anxiety was... Uh, in 2015-16 was because that's when he was running for office, right? And then the reason why we saw it again in 2020 is because, again, uh, you know, it was a, a ramping up, obviously not just him. Obviously, the George Floyd protests mm. were a big part of this as well. And I, God knows COVID didn't help. But maybe this mm -hmm. is like a temporary phenomenon. And in the boring Biden years, we will be able to look back with some clarity and, and have him, you know, a better kind of view about where we're at. Oh, that's my optimistic take. We can. That's that's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. now, I, I want you now. I want you to read Revolt of the Public because I think that is the 
that is a bad reason to be optimistic. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Even though I'm optimistic too. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I, Portland, Portland and Seattle is still having like nights of unrest. You know, yeah. it's not it's not widespread, but there's there's something going on. Ooh. And importantly, as much as like we're talking about like wokeness and anti-wokeness, the truth is that I I don't describe myself as anti-woke. I don't think the specific issues that people are animated by are even the most important thing. I think the cultural trends and the the rising liberalism really is like the fundamental issue here. And there's a sense in which a lot of these issues are kind of interchangeable. Like that's the thing that makes me optimistic is that I think the sense-making institution, the culture-shaping institutions, I, I did that thing already. I think they're losing their, their monopoly mm. and they are losing the degree of control that they have every single day. And there's greater competition. And I think that splitting all of that up and distributing that power more broadly and all of us becoming more accustomed to a different sort of media ecosystem and developing cultural antibodies to deal with a world where you have to ascertain truth in different kinds of ways. I think we'll actually figure that out. And I am optimistic that, you know, things will kind of break down enough that even like whatever weird cultural proclivities become common at like Yale and Harvard and Stanford, it won't, it won't fucking matter because those places don't matter nearly as much as they did 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, or even five years ago. And I expect that trend to continue and I'm grateful for it. I want all of these institutions to lose their power and to be cycled out and for new great things to emerge. It's, it's time to build, to quote someone much richer and smarter than me. Yeah, this is you at your most like Schump Schumpeterian, right? Like this kind of creative des destruction here <laughs> that and you but, but I mean like the I don't know. The, the 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 other part of that story is what comes next. I think like uh, mm -hmm. the populist ideal of the current institutions and their elite networks being shattered, that that gets us partway there, but something is going to come mm -hmm. next. Mm -hmm. This is not the end of institutions. No, you're right. So No, you're right. You're right. So, and the and the culture matters. And yeah. and that's why I want sane people like you and me like talking all the time and I I want us to crowd out all of the completely insane and unhinged conversations that I see happening in Crowd various places. Uh, that's what this I felt like. That. Well, yeah, more hands right. gone. No, so. I mean, Matt's, Matt sucks. Yeah. yeah. Matt's terrible. We have to get rid of Matt. No, Matt, Matt, is, Matt is a force for good in the world. I believe that. In most cases. Keep telling yourself <laughs> not, that. Not for fashion. It's just I don't know the worst. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Jeff, I've, I've enjoyed this immensely. Um, and again, I, I hope you didn't, you didn't think it was a waste of time and, and you're being honest and sincere in your praise for us. And now you will be a committed <laughs> listener, um, a devotee, a member of the fifth, um, I'm, I'm um, thrilled to America's be. most exciting cult <laughs> podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and just, I feel like not a podcast about cults, a cult podcast. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I, I know that being here, I run the risk of now just by proximity. Now I'm going to be canceled, uh, by, uh, no. <laughs> but, uh, I'm counting on you guys setting me up with a sub stack on the other side to, uh, make sure oh, I, yeah. I can get a oh, living. Oh yeah, man. So lucrative over there. Yeah. yeah we get so much money. The whole to be percentage made. thing worked out. It's great. It works out. Yeah. Damn right. <laughs> we'll negotiate the deal for you. I'll take care of you. Looking I'll forward. take care of you. All right. All right. Thanks brother. Happy to be here. Bye. Thanks guys. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.